on behalf of our group, I'd like to welcome you to Convo this morning. We're excited to share with you some of our experiences we had just this last spring in Cambodia. The music you heard now um, is typical of what we heard most of the time at any hour of the day or night at pretty much like very, very high decibels. Um, while we don't really know what was going on in the videos, we hope you um, took joy in watching them and trying to guess what was going on as well. So. Hi, I'm Allison Yoder. Um, I'm going to introduce our group a little bit. As far as our group goes, we're a pretty diverse bunch. We've got history majors, English majors, sociology, art, Spanish, um, music, education, and a couple others thrown in there. But one thing that we all had in common was our desire to go someplace completely different, someplace new and adventurous. And for all of us, I think Cambodia fulfilled that desire. Um, we were the second SST group to live in Cambodia from Goshen. And we had the same leaders as the last group, the Graber Miller family. Keith and Anne guided us through our initial transition to Khmer culture, as well as our adjustment with our families and getting to know the city as well as their children, Simon, Mia, and Niles, who is now a Goshen College student, if he could stand up for a minute. <laughs> Niles was like an honorary member of our SST family. And <laughs> I'm gonna give a little overview of Cambodia as a country. Um, it has a population of 14.5 million people and it's actually one of the least ethnically diverse countries in Southeast Asia. 90% um, of the population is uh, ethnically Khmer, and um, then there's small percentages of Vietnamese and Chinese as well. And 96% uh, of Cambodians are Buddhist. Um, there's a small province of uh, Cham Muslim, Cambodians, and then also a few uh, animist people in the northern provinces. Um, the official language is Khmer, with indigenous languages spoken in the northern provinces as well. And um, the capital city, which we stayed in for the first six weeks, is Phnom Penh. The terrain in Cambodia is pretty flat. Um, there's some mountains in the northern provinces, but for the most part, it's, it's really flat. Um, now Annie is going to talk more in depth about the language. Uh, one of, I'm Annie Martins, and I'm a junior. Um, one of my favorite parts of SST was getting to learn the language. It's called Khmer. Um, unfortunately, it's only spoken in Cambodia, so while it was fun to acquire the language, we're probably never going to use it again. Um, however, as far as languages go, Khmer is pretty easy. Um, it's a simple language, and apart from pronunciation difficulties, um, it's, it's extremely simple. There's no verb conjugation and very few bound morphemes for you linguists out there. Um, there are a lot of sounds in Khmer that are really, really foreign to English speakers, um, so our accents were terrible but we managed to get by. Cambodians really, really like to help us out and our vocabularies grew daily. Um, the most basic phrase, the first one that we learned was Chumripsua, and that's a polite greeting. Um, you can try saying that if you want. Chumripsua. Um, and when you say Chumripsua, you're always supposed to do the sompear, which is the hand gesture. Um, otherwise, you're being polite and people will think you're lazy. 
Um, there's five levels of the Sampayar based on social status. Um, one for people of lower status than you, so it's at chin level. And then for people of equal social status, it's at lip level. Um, for superiors, nose level, monks, forehead, and kings above your head. So for example, when I greeted my host mother daily, I would say, Chumriipsua, and she would say, Chumriipsua. Um, basically, the higher you put your hands, the more respect you're showing. Um, some common phrases that you would hear in day-to-day -day Cambodian life are uh, my favorite, which means no problem, and it's used a lot, and it's pretty versatile. Um, you can also say, which is how are you. Um, which we heard multiple times a day, which means eat rice. And which is thank you very much. For our language lessons, we focused on speaking Khmer, um, but because the Khmer script is so foreign to us. But I enjoyed learning Khmer so much that I wanted to read and write it as well. So I asked my host mom in the city to teach me. Um, and then various Cambodians that I met kind of took up this cause and tried to educate me. Um, once I had all 40-ish letters memorized, it was pretty easy to sound words out because Khmer is phonetic. Um, so for my final project, made an extremely artistic children's book uh, to demonstrate my skills. Um, so this is an example of Khmer script, and uh, I'll just read that page on the right there. Uh, and the translation of that is, if the weather is good, Marina likes to fly kites with her friends. And now, we're going to do a little skit for you. When we weren't riding our bikes, we had to rely on motos and tuk-tuks to transport us through the city. A feisty bartering exchange between us and the driver was typical. One of our favorite phrases to use as a group was chetata, meaning nonsense. When a driver suggested an inflated price, one thing was for sure, we were not going to be ripped off by two cents. Annie, Kat, and I are going to act out this typical exchange. Sarah, do you want to get a mic? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. <What's that>? <laughs> <laughs> cha, cha. Cha, man. <laughs> okay, it's ridiculous. That's two dollars for a mile. No. no way. Um, how about fifty cents? Fifty cents. Fifty cents. Good. All right. All right. Pipon, pipon, peanut, pipon. Ah, climb now, peanut. Munch day. Before I dive into my thing, what I'm wearing this morning is a sarong, which is what women would wear around the house. So it's very typical. It's just a piece of fabric sewn in a circle. 
Um, Cambodia is 96% Buddhism, as Sarah said earlier, with a few percent animist and Christian. Um, and actually, my host sister on service was Christian, uh, which was stressful at times because she expected me to fit into the Cambodian Christianity, which I don't. Um, but it was very interesting to live with her and to um, talk with her about that. And I became very interested in learning about the religion in Cambodia. So I did my final project on Buddhism. Um, of the several schools of Buddhism, Cambodia practices Theravada Buddhism, which is rooted in the teachings of the historical Buddha. Their pagodas, or temples, are beautiful but pretty simple compared to the other Buddhist traditions. Um, and the ultimate goal of Theravadans is to attain enlightenment so that all suffering and desires may cease. And in order to do this, Theravadans invest in a rigorous spiritual practice um, in which they renounce the world and dedicate their lives to meditation and seeking enlightenment. Um, but because it's so rigorous, lay people can't really attain enlightenment, only monks. Cambodian communities aren't involved in or dependent upon the pagodas like they once were, largely due to the upheaval of the Khmer Rouge, which was from 75 to 79, when about two-thirds of Cambodian monks were murdered or died of starvation. Today, saffron-robed saffron monks are not honored as they used to be. Many young men become monks for a few years to get an education and learn English, and politicians are known to manipulate this power to, of pagodas to win votes from its patrons. However, people still go to pagodas and shrines to offer incense and prayer and continue to leave offerings on their shrines of orange roasted pigs, beer and Coca-Cola, bagels, etc. Although Buddhism has been abused this last century, Buddhism does remain in the hearts of the people. Okay, um, as is typical of scheduling for SST, we started the first six weeks taking language classes and listening to lectures um, on Cambodian cultural topics. Our language classes were at the Royal University of Phnom Penh. Um, we were kind of oddballs among all of the traditional Khmer students, but we tried to blend in by wearing um, similar uniforms as Phil is demonstrating <laughs> this morning. <laughs> Okay, we got to know our professors pretty well and enjoyed our interactions with them. In class, we were taught to like things to do, like Chumripsua and Sompayar to um, people that we met, and things not to do, like point feet at people. Um, that's considered very rude. Um, things to eat, like wild deer in Ratanakiri. Um, things not to eat, like the fried spiders that we were served on the way to Siem Reap, which most of us, I think, tried anyway. Um, we learned how to wear kermas and how to do apsara dancing. We also learned a couple of songs, one of which we'd like to share with you now. So, are there words on this? Okay, this is the train. Oh, okay, it's the words. Yeah.
Okay, um, we gathered together then every afternoon to hear from sociologists, anthropologists, social justice workers, and rep representatives from NGOs or non-governmental organizations, and political officials. One leader that we were honored to hear from was a female parliamentarian, Musakua. She was a very controversial political activist fighting for justice in a very corrupt government. We also heard from an organization that was helping Cambodians from the United States return to Cambodia due to the recent deportation laws. Um, we heard much about the social injustices, women's rights, and psychological health of Cambodians related to post-Khmer Rouge trauma. Between our university classes and the afternoon lectures, we had time to bike around and through the city to explore on our own. Some of us would go to parks, eat at Hong Bai's or rice shops, or shop at the market. We really enjoyed being able to bike through in the traffic, which was very busy and intimidating. Basically, the way that traffic worked was that the bigger vehicle had the right of way. So if you were a truck, you had the right of way over a car. If you were a car, you had the right of way over a biker who had the right of way over a walker. Um, anyway. And also, another goal of the traffic was basically to not stop. So if there were two vehicles stopped in front of you because they were waiting to turn, you should maneuver your way through the vehicles in order to prevent yourself from stopping. Um, motos and tuk-tuks were the main form of public transportation, which we utilized when we weren't biking. In the skit you saw earlier, Annie and Rachel were displaying a typical price negotiation between a moto driver and us. In the end, we really all enjoyed biking through the city and had a lot of fun doing that. During our time in the city, we took a lot of group field trips to different historical and cultural sites. Um, we also experienced some karaoke, which is cultural there. They do it a lot. Um, throughout our time, we went to a clothing factory, the Royal Palace, the National Museum of Cambodia, as well as Tool Slang, which was a Khmer Rouge prison, which used to be an elementary school, but they turned into a prison during the Khmer Rouge times. And at this particular prison, they have all the names of the victims recorded, <laughs> along with their <laughs> age and occupation, accompanied by a photo of their faces. Um, we also went to the Killing Fields, which was a mass grave site. And during the time of the Khmer Rouge, uh, prisoners were brought to an already dug hole, lined up around it, and murdered so that their bodies would fall into the grave, so they wouldn't actually have to be buried. Um, Several years after the war ended, people began to uncover these bones and find these grave sites and use their bones and clothing in order to make a memorial to those people who had been killed. Now the fields are open for visitors to come and observe as we did. This is of the National Palace, not actually yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> we also went to Rabbit Island and to Angkor Wat in Siem Reap. Uh, we spent four days in Siem Reap looking around another commercial city like Phnom Penh and spent one full day exploring the empire founded by King Javayarman II in 802, Angkor Wat. Um, most of us woke up before the sun and stationed ourselves among other visitors to watch the sun rise and make the temples reflect in the pond in front of the temple, which it actually never did, but the stars were beautiful. We were impressed by the architecture and the design of the vast temples, which would have been built by successive kings during the 12th and 13th centuries, which each tried to one-up the previous king. Um, 
you can see that the temples are now deteriorating, partly due to time, partly due to people climbing all over them, visitors. Um, much of the ruins of the temples are a result of the damage done during the Khmer Rouge, though, which Bailey and Jake are now going to tell us a bit more about. So as Allison mentioned, um, the Khmer Rouge was a pretty major part of um, Cambodia's history. On April 17, 1975, Khmer Rouge soldiers marched into Cambodia's capital city of Phnom Penh and soon began ordering out the people in the city. 2.5 million people were evacuated with no exceptions. Entire families, uh, the elderly, even hospital patients were all forced to the countryside. Similar evacuations occurred in various other cities throughout Cambodia. A man named Pol Pot was the leader behind this transformation, and the vision that required these evacuations was for a new Cambodia, uh, for a new agrarian-based communist society. All were forced to work on farms, small clinics, or in positions of leadership, and any individuals who posed any threat to the Khmer Rouge were quickly and easily killed. These threats included doctors, teachers, former government workers, and anyone with an education. Children were separated from their parents and brainwashed on the new political structure. They were taught to kill and turn in anyone who appeared to be against the Khmer Rouge. Upon confrontation, many individuals easily sided with the Khmer Rouge in order to spare their lives, for the other option was almost certain death. Torture was used to gain information on who was planning on taking over the Khmer Rouge. Many torture centers were established, uh, but the most known of these was Tool Slang, which Allison mentioned. Um, a former school located in Phnom Penh, it was turned into the most documented torture center and today serves as a museum and memorial to those who entered its doors. Of the estimated 14,000 people who entered Tool Slang, only 12 survived. Those who were killed were tortured at the center and then taken to Chen Eich, uh, which is also known as the Killing Fields. The Khmer Rouge maintained their violent power for three years, eight months, and 21 days. Finally, on January 7, 1979, the Vietnamese successfully took over, causing many Khmer Rouge soldiers to flee into the jungles of Cambodia. By the end of this time, an estimated two million Cambodians had been killed or died due to awful living conditions and major lack of food. This was roughly about one-third of Cambodia's population prior to the arrival of the Khmer Rouge. Our group studied uh, this period during the second week of our study portion, and one of our assignments was to interview our families um, about this time, as many had experienced these um, horrific realities firsthand. A couple of us actually had uh, family members who had roles in the Khmer Rouge, including Sarah's host dad on service, who was known as the strong man. Uh, Jake is now going to share the interview that he had with a family member. Hi, I'm Jake Snyder. And um, one of the week's journal's assignments was to interview a host family member about their experience during the Khmer Rouge. And um, fortunately, during that time, my mom's uh, brother was visiting from Australia. So I thought I'd take advantage of the um, no need for a translator. So I started talking to him, and then I began asking him questions about his experience during the time. He was very nervous at first, and it was tough to get him rolling, but uh, once I got him going, he, it was so hard to get him to stop. He ended up talking my ear off. But um, 
uh, one of the first thing he said was there was just mass confusion on the day that Phnom Penh was cleared out and uh, very disorganized, just soldiers everywhere, trucks coming in. And um, he said that uh, he had no idea what was happening and his family just got split up. So his family was his mom, his three sisters and himself. And um, after that day, he never saw his older sister again. And um, she was a teacher, so she was most probably killed right away. And uh, he told me the conditions were very rough. There was very little food. He was forced to steal food and be very sneaky about it or else he would get killed. Um, so there was hard work, 14 hours days out in the fields, like planting rice, cultivating, and, um, and lots of terror. Um, he told me this one really horrifying story, and it was one day he and four other friends were led out into a field. Um, my host uncle was made to watch his, his four other friends get killed with hammer blows to the back of the skull. They did this because they wanted to conserve bullets. And um, just him telling me the story, you could hear the horror in his voice of having to watch that. Um, he, he survived the Khmer Rouge and uh, fled, to, fled to Australia. And, um, and, it was, and I was just in awe by this story and even more blown away to find out that I was the first one he ever told this story to, 30 years after it happened. And um, many of us in the group have similar stories to this. Hello, I'm Julian Sider. I'm Annalisa Harder. Uh, to point out real quick, I'm wearing a chroma. This is something that uh, men, I guess sometimes women, in their leisure time would wear. You can also take it off, wrap it around your head, do a number of things. And I have a sarong on, like Stephanie, and you can also shower in this, and you pull it up and dump water on yourself and get clean. Uh, we're gonna talk about weddings. Uh, while on SST, a number of us attended traditional Khmer weddings. These weddings spanned over two days. Uh, if you had more money, maybe three days. The first day was filled with just uh, traditional rituals, including uh, honoring the parents, honoring the food, and also uh, calling the ancestors. Uh, one of the biggest differences in the weddings was in the pictures and through all the traditional rituals, nobody smiled. Uh, they just keep a straight face in all the pictures. So when I was in the wedding and when I went up to front and did the rituals with my family, I was just grinning and felt quite out of place. Uh, I guess another one of the biggest differences would be, so after the two days, uh, the last day is filled with karaoke. Uh, or you, have a, you have a meal and then the end is filled with a karaoke that runs until 6 a.m. with the music blaring at 150%. Uh, before we left, our teacher actually gave us earplugs for the weddings because she had been there previous and almost gotten deaf uh, at one of the weddings. Um, and then another big part of the weddings is for um, the females who are just attending the weddings and you get dressed up. In, when we were in the city, it was either a traditional outfit, which is like tight, a tight sarong and a top, and, and then the younger generation would wear what they called sexy clothes and like short dresses, and it was a mix, but in the villages it was generally the traditional outfits. Um, and then makeup, they would go all out, plaster their face with, like, painted basically. But I'm going to read a journal entry from when I was at a wedding in the village. Um, we lived in a stilt village. So the wedding, quite an event. I went for the 11.30 party lunch. Getting ready was funny. My mom and sister, Sri Mike, were in charge of my outfit. Ma would put me in something traditional. 
Stray Mike would laugh when she saw it, pull me to her room, which was just a, a cloth covering, and dress me in something more sexy. Ma would veto and we'd go again. This happened four times. <laughs> I ended up in a pink red skirt of Ma's and a white pink shirt dress thing of Stray Mike's. Hot pink blush, eyeshadow, and bright pink lipsticks. It was stunning. <laughs> Julian just laughed when he saw me. Uh, so our second portion of SST was uh, six weeks on service. We were in small groups in all the provinces of Cambodia. Uh, we were teaching English, computer skills, and working with MCC, a number of different things. Uh, here's Austin and Mikey to speak about their experience. Uh, I'm Michael Ruth. And I'm Austin Yoder. And uh, the, one of the most interesting provinces, provinces in Cambodia is uh, called Ratanakiri. And uh, seven of us went there, and it's predominantly filled with indigenous villages and ethnic minorities that most of them don't speak the Khmer language. So that was uh, real nice to have six weeks of language training that did nothing for us. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so Austin will tell you a little bit about our, our adventure. Um, well, like uh, some of the other students said before, Ratanakari is uh, one of the most, um, not impoverished, primitive, primitive of, of, the, of the regions in Cambodia. Um, we found this out really quick as we uh, attempted to get there on a 12-hour bus ride that uh, we, only, we only ended up traveling 300 miles, but it was one of the, it was, one of the sweatiest, hottest, dustiest experiences of my life. Um, but we finally, we finally get there, um, and we um, are immediately plagued with this difficulty of, of finding the village that we're supposed to be getting to. Uh, this was due to the fact that um, the Cambodian government is, um, has been trying to uh, steal land from these indigenous uh, ethnic minorities. Um, for uh, forest resources and also a new um, gem mining business um, where the government wound up taking their land and not compensating them fairly for it. Um, and so they, because this has been a huge deal, the, uh, the village has been trying to fight legal battles and um, we were suspected of being uh, undercover journalists and um, were actually um, at first not allowed into the village. But um, once that all got sorted out, we had more difficulties with our service, uh, our actual service tasks. We were originally sent there to teach computer skills, but um, <clears throat> that was really hard because they didn't have a computer. Or <laughs> even if they did, they didn't have electricity to, to like charge a computer. The or nearest electricity was a five mile bike ride into, into nearest town. And they didn't know the English alphabet. And, and they didn't know how to read and write. So, um, <laughs> so the computer thing was scratched. Um, so we were kind of left without a purpose in this place. They didn't have a school there either. Yeah, so um, we decided, well, let's just make, try to make the best of this and, and try to teach them a, little, a couple of English phrases as, as, as helpful as that could maybe be to them. It was kind of the only service we could really offer. So because of this, um, our typical day was, was, was rather slow. Um, most, of, most of the day was spent uh, in a hammock um, on the porch. Um, yeah, just kind of trying to talk about what what did we talk about? Food mostly. Talked a lot about cereal. Cereal, um, <laughs> cereal. Uh, movies. Movies. Yeah. Um, 
Occasionally, we break up this hammock routine by maybe taking a, a, a bath in, in the well or maybe venturing out into the, into the jungle to use the restroom with the pigs. Um, yeah. Sometimes you would get like up to 14 pigs surrounding you because you were going to the bathroom in the woods. Uh, other <laughs> just, than that. Just waiting. Just waiting for you to finish. Oh, man. <laughs> So. Other than that, um, occasional five-mile bike ride into town for a cup of coffee was pretty fun. Um, yeah. Um, that was our day. Yeah, we, we did eventually end up um, finding out, or we, we set up English teaching in a neighboring village that we would ride our bikes to a couple days a week, so we didn't completely not do anything. <laughs> um, but one of, the, one of the best parts uh, of the whole SST experience for us was we got to take part in a ceremony that happens every five to six years of a water buffalo sacrifice, which is what this is from. Um, and the sacrifice was for the, the spirits and the animals. And basically, uh, the, the men from the village danced around and played drums and gongs all night um, and danced around the buffalo before they killed it the next morning. And... Um, after they killed it, each family was allotted five kilos of meat. Um, it was probably the best food we had there the whole time. It was also, we also ate it raw. <laughs> yeah, we ate it raw too. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you've ever seen the movie Apocalypse Now, there's um, actual footage of a Jirai water buffalo sacrifice, which is the tribe we stayed with. So, yeah, that was a pretty good end to the, the SST experience. So, yeah. My name's Charlie. Uh, good morning and salamu alaikum. Uh, Jake and I had the chance to live in a primarily Muslim village um, in the province Kampung Cham. And, you know, right when we were deciding our service assignments, we had both expressed interest in um, learning about Islam and living with uh, Cham Muslim people. So we got to live with a Muslim family and started kind of hanging around the mosque in our village. We weren't really sure if, you know, if we'd be welcome to uh, come in. And one day we were just hanging around in the doorway and we were beckoned in. And before we knew it, we were uh, learning how to go through the prayer and um, started uh, writing out the prayer in kind of a, an English phonetic so that we could read it and memorize it and it, it was really cool how we just were adopted into this uh, this community around the mosque and uh, we'd spent a lot of our time there we ended up going to mosque three or four times a day for six weeks and we got to uh, we would eat meals with uh, some of the guys at the mosque after after prayer we'd go to their house and uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. A real sense of community there, especially the meals afterwards and hanging out. And we'd go to there was a wedding and just had a big feast there while we were, while we were there. But um, our main service assignment while we were there was teaching English to uh, children that were probably about six until twelve years old. And uh, we taught twice a day at noon and also at five. And um, 
it was just a blast. We taught him basic English as much as we could. We taught him a lot of games like Heads Up, Seven Up, Hangman. We taught him songs like Itsy Bitsy Spider, YMCA. Um, <laughs> the Macarena was their favorite. Yeah, that was Macarena. definitely their favorite. Um, what else? We just played a lot of soccer. It was great. Um, what else? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, the village was really run on, it was really agricultural, like, based, so um, their main crop was tobacco, but they also uh, grew corn and sesame seed, and um, we lived with the village chief, which was really neat to see all the interactions there with that. There was, there was often a, a huge brick of tobacco, dried tobacco, like, probably this high. 800 kilos yeah. of it. Un under our, <laughs> under our, our house. Most of the week, yeah. and the air was just thick with the smell of, of yeah. tobacco. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm a smoker or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, and yeah, that was that was our service. <laughs> I'm Phil Stace. I'm Chloe. I'm Seth. And one of the biggest differences when you go to another country is the food difference. And uh, while in Cambodia, we had some of the best stir fries and some of the best fruit we've ever had. It was mango season, so you could just go down the street and buy like whole big ripe mangoes and pineapples for like 25 or 50 cents, and it was just delicious. But when you get out to the country, the food situation gets a little bit more interesting. Um, so Kelly Fry and I were in Maesong District, which is one of the poorest districts of Cambodia. And one night, uh, one of our co-workers asked us to come over to his house for fresh chicken soup. And one of my goals on SST was to see something alive and then see it be killed and then eat it. So that goal was achieved when we went over to his house when he picked up one of his very few chickens and proceeded to slaughter it and give us the food. Now, because we were Caucasian, and they haven't seen very many Caucasian people at all, we were these honored guests to their house, and of course the honored guests get the best food. Of course, their definition of the best food was different from ours, so when Kelly and I received our chicken soup, sitting on top of it were the intestines and a big patty of coagulated blood. Um, which actually didn't taste that bad. It was actually kind of like a salty tofu. Um, but because it's dishonoring not to eat it, Kelly and I <laughs> ate it down with a lot of the other chicken, and we were just surprised at their generosity towards it. Um, so Seth and I went to Ratanakiri, the province that Mikey and Austin talked about, and just a precursor, um, the people in Ratanakiri's food experience was, I think, quite a bit different than a lot of other people's. Um, we were with indigenous uh, ethnic groups, so it wasn't typical Khmer food. And um, I would also like to say that I thought I had a, like a stomach of steel before I went there, and I wasn't so picky, but they made it pretty hard. Um, so I remember my first meal there, I had to hold back um, multiple gags, and I just wondered that night what the rest of the six weeks were gonna hold. 
Um, and within the first week, my mom brought out a bowl of this grayish meat and a bowl of rice. And um, like Phil said, you have to eat. And um, so I tried it, and it was, I couldn't actually really taste it. They spice everything with salt, chili peppers, and uh, MSG. So I was eating this gray meaty thing with a bunch of bone fragments in it and all this. And after I'd um, choked some back, I finally, um, my, the curi uh, my curiosity got the better of me, and I asked what it was. And um, they said this word that I'd never heard before. And so for clarification, I said, so it's not chicken, and it's not beef, and it's not pork. And they kind of laughed, and I said, no, no, no. <laughs> and then my sister ran out and uh, brought back a dead rat. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked down in the bowl and saw a rat's head in the bowl. <laughs> um, so <laughs> rat became a pretty uh, consistent staple in my diet. Cool. Um, we also got to enjoy a duck embryo, uh, coagulated blood, um, innards of every sort, um, vines and minnows. So, woohoo! Uh, hello, I'm Seth. As Chloe said, I was with her in Ratanakri. And um, the first week I was there, I went out on this motor ride with my host, with my host dad and his brother, just sort of going around meeting and greeting the people I would, I would be living with. Um, and it gets to be around noon, get a, it gets to be lunchtime, so we stop, we stop out in the middle of the country, there's this bamboo hut on stilts, and I'm looking in, and on the ground I see, I see this dead dog. And um, naively, my first thought was, oh man, this dog died. Like, I'm gonna see like, kids crying, I'm gonna like, witness this dog funeral or whatever. But instead, I walk up closer to, to the hut and then I see the dog is skinned. And then I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna have to eat this dog. <laughs> uh, and so then we proceed to go into the, into the house and this guy comes out with this big butcher knife and just starts starts hacking away at just chopping it up. And I'm just sitting there just like, oh, oh my word, what's going on? <laughs> um, and then if the situation wasn't awkward enough, um, this, old lady, <laughs> this old lady comes in to help, to help chop it up. And um, she happened to be topless, which was customary of women of her age. So that was kind of gross, too. And then... Um, <laughs> And then she starts, she starts taking up chunks of this dog and like, it w she would like, she would like stare, stare me down and take these big whacks at it and like cackle while she's saying like, <laughs> it was like, it was like her main, her main goal was to make me feel as uncomfortable as I could. Um, and it, and it, and it did. Um, so. Again, they're just chopping up this dog, and the whole and the whole time, I'm just like trying to psych myself up for eating this. I was like, I was like, come on, Seth, this is SST. This is what people do. This like new experiences. Try something wild. You can do it. Come on. Um, so I was just telling myself this whole time, and then eventually they chopped the dog up into enough pieces of motion, I guess, um, and they put everything into this big pot: bones, intestines, skin, the jawbone, everything. 
Um, sprinkle on some spices and then stew it for a while. Um, and then they served it over rice and we feasted on dog together. Um, the worst part for myself was not knowing what part of the dog I was eating because it was all just sort of chewy. So just eating it and imagining what part of the dog that came from was fun. <laughs> so yeah, that's my story. <laughs> yeah. And keep in mind that all these stories are actually outliers when it came to our food stories. Most of the food we had was really very, very delicious. We had good food. Um, I'm Trisha, and this is Allison, and we went down to Kampote, which is on the southern coast of Cambodia. And along with teaching, we also worked with a NGO, a non-governmental organization called Devi House, that worked with women of Cambodia. And in our area, we actually made, well, we didn't make cookies. The women made cookies, and then they gave them to us to go sell in the city. <laughs> But in other areas, they made scarves. And actually, when we left, they asked us to bring scarves back with us to sell in the States. So as many of us that could, we took individual packages of scarves and stuffed them into our suitcases and brought back a good number, which we will be selling. I'm wearing one. Me too. They're very bright, they're very colorful, and they're handmade, hand-woven silk scarves these Cambodian women made. And we'll be selling them. Watch for an ad in the communicator. They're $15 each and make great presence, so thank you. <laughs> oh, and next we'll be singing another traditional song that we learned during our study time in Cambodia. It's called Arapia. just going to read a short journal entry that I wrote in my SST journal um, about Cambodia and development. I had a really good discussion today after one of our afternoon lectures with a, people with a few people from the group. One person was saying that she was disappointed with the let's fix it perspective that many of our speakers have taken of Cambodia. It doesn't seem appropriate, she said, for us as Westerners to come to Cambodia and just learn about all of their horrible backwater policies and government regimes when many Cambodians are perfectly happy with the way things are. If we were to try to fix Cambodia's problems, would that just be imposing some kind of colonial westernizing authority on Cambodia and its unique culture? Is it better for us to just leave Cambodia well enough alone and allow it to retain its traditional culture than to try and improve and develop it by Western standards? These are some huge questions, and I'm not sure how I feel about them. While I definitely want to be culturally sensitive, part of me thinks that the leaving them alone route is both an easy way out for Westerners and a way for us to feel good about ourselves and our own open-mindedness. 
This open-mindedness feels a little dogmatic, the idea that no matter what, Americans should always critique their own culture and accept or be open to other people's cultures. I would like to see a more nuanced interaction with Cambodian culture, though I'm not sure what form that would take. Ideally, we would both educate every Cambodian in a way that would allow them to live healthier lives and also retain their exceptional, untouched Cambodianism. Does education necessarily mean westernization? And even if it does, is that a bad thing? The ultimate question, I guess, is what is going to make Cambodians the most happy? Economic development or the preservation of their traditions and culture as a nation? Or ideally, a combination of the two? As Westerners, we can't really answer this question, and I'm not sure Cambodians can either. So this is kind of an unconcludable conclusion, um, but as I send you off, I want to leave you with an image. Towards the end of service, we saw this Cambodian woman who had on the back of her shoulder, in small, in elegant black ink, this small tattoo of a question mark, just a question mark. But I think that the permanence of that question mark on her shoulder perfectly describes the humility and the acceptability of never knowing anything for sure that I discovered in Cambodia. Thank you, and you're free to go.